0: Well, if you're like me, I don't take any chances with any spoiled food whatsoever. Like if the thing on the, the turkey from Acme says it expired today, no chance. That thing's going right in the garbage. If I've got one of those little containers of blueberries, and I've got a couple that look sus, and they're slimy, and then they got some, some things on it. I'm not picking out all the ones that I I think are good. The whole thing's going to get pitched. It's just something I have in me. Drives my wife crazy. One of the many things. In my mind, the whole thing is contaminated and unable to be salvaged. Now, I know that was a humorous example, but take a giant transitional leap with me. How does God look at humanity? And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt... That we are sinners, that we have all, every single one of us, fallen short of God and His glory. And the Bible tells us from cover to cover that we have all experienced it in our own lives. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. So, does God then throw away all of humanity because all of us have been spoiled by sin? And the answer is by no means. Or where Paul will start today. Does God throw away all of Israel? Because they, by and large, have turned their back on God. And once again, the answer is by no means. God saves some. God saves a remnant. And that is all by his grace. So if you're not there already, head over to Romans 11. Last week, we finished up in chapter 10, taking a look at the nature of the gospel. Recall we said that the gospel is a message to be proclaimed to all. A command to be obeyed through belief, and an offer to be accepted without excuse. And church, God has entrusted us with the message of this precious gospel. He gave it to us in his word that's been preserved throughout the centuries, and we are responsible for this gospel to proclaim it, to obey it, and to get it right. And at the risk of throwing around some really important words without defining them, we always need to just stop and make sure everybody understands the gospel The gospel literally means good news. And the gospel is then the good news of what God has done through his son to save sinners like us. And for the first few chapter of Romans, Paul has been lamenting that his fellow Jews have rejected the gospel. They have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They have continued to try to substitute their own efforts, their own works, their own law obedience in order to be declared righteous before God. And Paul gives us a bit of a transitional passage this week, summarizing once again that this is the way that it ultimately has to work in all people, but using the Jewish nation as a case study A small remnant will believe, but the rest will not and refuse. And let's look at this remnant. Romans 11, starting in verse 1, Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to bow. So so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We pause there. Paul, the master of anticipating objections, he's been doing this all along as we've been going through Romans. He knows, he anticipates an objection, and then he answers it in this letter. He responds to the objection to the gospel saying, what are you saying here, Paul? Does God just write off Israel? Is there there nothing special about Israel anymore? His own nation, God's just rejected them, abandoned them, and his answer is a familiar one. For the ninth time so far in Romans, he says, by no means. Which is one of the strongest negations you can make in Greek. Absolutely not. If you're rolling King James, God forbid. We've seen it time and time again. Has God rejected all of Israel? No. Absolutely not. What is the evidence Paul gives? Well, exhibit A, he gives himself. He says, of course he hasn't rejected all of Israel because you know what? I'm an Israelite. So he hasn't rejected all of Israel because I came from Israel and I believed. And I'm here telling you that. He says, guys, God didn't reject Israel. I'm Jewish. Not only am I Jewish, I'm super Jewish. I'm like a PhD, varsity, Pharisee level Jew. I'm more Jewish than any of you. Besides, God is the one who foreknew his people. And when he uses foreknew there, it's not so much in the way he used it in Romans 8. It's more the way of God chose his people as a whole, his nation, Israel. He chose them. He called them out. He created them. Then as his custom, Paul makes a beeline to the Old Testament to prove his point. And he cites the very familiar account of the prophet Elijah. Fresh after a spectacular tail whooping of the prophets of Baal, You'd think that'd be Elijah's best day. Unfortunately, it wasn't. Elijah gets threatened by Jezebel, and after just spectacularly defeating all of the prophets of Baal and then and personally killing hundreds of them in God's judgment, at this one threat from Jezebel, Elijah turns tail and runs in the opposite direction. He ends up hiding in a cave from God. Never a good idea to hide from God, by the way. He's always going to find you. And so he catches up with him in a cave. And it's this beautiful scene in 1 Kings 18, 19. You can look at that later. Beautiful scene. He just says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And he repeats this, this mantra over and over again, which just, just kind of doesn't make any sense. He says, what are you doing here? And he says, my name is Inigo Mantaya. You killed my father. No, he doesn't say that. <laughs> Some of you will get that later if you didn't laugh, okay? I just could not resist that. I apologize. I repent from that. Please don't at me. But that's literally what it's like. He just doesn't make any sense. He just keeps saying this over and over again. He's like, God, they killed all your prophets. They're after me. I'm the only one left, and they're going to kill me too. And Paul interprets the Old Testament, as it applies to their context, and he says, this is the same way it works today. God's chosen a remnant from the Jews, chosen by Greece, not on the basis of any merit from anyone or any works of them, because, just because of grace. Because what was God's answer to Elijah? Paul said it. He basically says, Elijah, chill out. Stop. Okay? Stop with the mantra. I have a remnant. I've, I have got guys that have not bowed the knees to Baal. They're still faithful to me. And that's how it still works today. And he says, it's all grace. If it was on the basis of anything else, it wouldn't be grace. But it's on the basis of me, so guess what? It's grace. It's all grace. Grace is getting something much better than we deserve. In this case, salvation is all by God's grace. Out of the many who reject God, God saves some, and that's all his grace. And so the big idea up front today, and then we're gonna pick it apart and apply the second part of the passage, but here it is. God saves a remnant, and that's all by his grace. God saves a remnant, right? Remnant being a small part of the whole. God saves a remnant, and it's all by his grace. Paul brings up Elijah, to show that this was the way that God has always worked. Against the backdrop of a nation who rejected God, most theologians think that all those hundreds of prophets of Baal were actually Israelites that have turned their back on God and started to worship Baal himself. Against the backdrop of all of that was going on in in heresy and rejection of God, God still saved a remnant out of Israel then, and he's still going to save a remnant out of Israel today. And he's still going to continue to save a remnant out of all humanity today. Dr. Tom Schreiner writes, puts it this way. What the story of Elijah does illustrate, however, is that the majority of Israel was apostate. They've turned their back on God. Here's the point of similarities between Elijah's day and Paul's. Most of Israel had refused to acknowledge Jesus as the resurrected Lord. And this refusal is comparable to Israel's devotion to Baal instead of to Yahweh. God saves some. He saves a remnant from the larger whole. This is the way God works with his people. And starting with Israel, as we saw in chapter 9, verse 27, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Last week, we saw in chapter 10, verse 21, that God is still holding out his hand all day to a disobedient and stubborn and defiant people for salvation. This is the way it works today, church. The Bible does not proclaim universalism, that everyone will be saved in the end, that all paths lead to God, but rather only those who obey the gospel. Only those who submit to Jesus in repentance and faith. Paul has consistently proclaimed the universality, what, of the opposite, that we're all sinners, that we're all separated from God because of our sin. And then he proclaims the, the uh, specific notion of we are saved only by faith in Jesus Christ. Look at Elijah. How discouraging must that have been to see his own people turn their back on Yahweh and worship Baal and become employed as servants of Baal. He must have felt like he was the only one left. He did, because he kept saying that. And sometimes we ask ourselves, am I the only Christian in my whole family? Am I the only Christian in my job? Am I, am I the only Christian on this block? Why do I feel like an alien sometimes around here? There's no one else that I have fellowship with. And take encouragement. God had a remnant For Elijah and the remnant is alive and well for us too. I think the better question for us church is this. Since we are his remnant, are we being faithful? Do people see that we have a different king, that we obey a different law? And here's a related application question. Are we faithful to love each other within our remnant? Do we have the brotherly and sisterly affection for each other? Coming to church and being with our brothers and sisters in Christ should feel like an oasis in the middle of a desert when we're going all week long in the world. Does it feel like that? And maybe one more application question. Do we personally feel like the recipients of God's grace? Do we feel like, yeah, I'm I'm part of the remnant. He picked me out from from all of the sinful backdrop of humanity. And he lavished his grace on me. And that was nothing I did of my own volition. That was what God did for me. It's all through grace. Because the reality of the situation is, guys, he didn't have to. He didn't have to. He didn't have to save anyone. And that's where Paul goes next and quotes more Old Testament scripture to prove that. Look at verse 7. He says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this day. Paul is continuing this debate within himself, again, anticipating the question So, what are you saying here, Paul? Are you saying that Israel failed? that they didn't obtain what they were seeking? Are you saying that no one in Israel can be right with God? Well, well, what was Israel seeking? Israel was seeking the same thing really all of humanity is seeking, is to be right with God. How? It's the age-old age question. The most important question that every human being has to face is how do we, as sinners separated from God, how can we possibly be right with a holy God when we know, sure well, that we are sinners. Israel missed it. Well, most of Israel missed it, and they're still missing it. They're trying to substitute their own way of being declared innocent or righteousness, disobed- or rather obedience to the law. Paul covered this already in chapter 9, starting in verse 30. Again, another anticipatory question. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's what Paul says. He's already said that already. Yeah, they didn't obtain it because they weren't going about it the right way. They were trying to obey the law. I've given them the one and only way for all of humanity to be saved is faith in Jesus Christ. But yet they still continue to cling to making their own way of righteousness, which is obeying the law. And so, yes, they failed to obtain it. The majority of Israel are not part of the remnant, not part of the elect. Why? Paul comes right out and says it. Look again at verse Uh, chapter 11 verse 7 what then israel failed to obtain what he was it was seeking the elect obtained it but the rest were hardened if you read your bible honestly you can never walk away with universalism it's it's literally impossible because there's no universalism in this bible but yet that's the backdrop of what our culture says is that there's many ways to god In the end, everybody is saved. In the end, everybody finds their way to heaven, right? We see that sometimes in funerals, right? When people are trying to come to grips with the the loss of a loved one or whatever. And they say, well, he's in a better place or she's in a better place. And we try and kind of staple that on at the end there. The Bible doesn't talk about universalism. There's a very specific way That we receive forgiveness, reconciliation, and eternal life. It is only through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is that he saves some. Not all. He saves some. He saves the remnant. He saves the elect. The elect obtain righteousness, salvation. Why? Because they see the way that God has provided it for them through faith in Jesus Christ. The elect get that. The remnant gets that. Those that are not elect do not. They don't understand it. They don't have ears to hear. They don't have that, those eyes to see, meaning they won't get it. They can't get it. They don't have the heart to understand. They don't have the eyes to see. They don't have the ears to hear. And then he quotes a few Old Testament passages. As a matter of fact, he quotes not one, not two, but three Old Testament passages to back all this up. It's rather significant that he quotes the passages that he quotes because he quotes one from every section of the Jewish canon, the Old Testament. He quotes one from each of the main groups of Israel, of Old Testament itself rather, one from the prophets, one from the law, and one from the writings. First up, he quotes the prophets. Specifically, he quotes one from Isaiah. And so in the context of Isaiah, in this part where he's quoting from, The prophet is foretelling that the Babylonian army will one day come in, surround Jerusalem, cut it off in a siege before they invade, conquer, and exile them as part of God's judgment on them for rejecting him. And this is all part of God's plan. Does Israel understand the warnings of Isaiah? Nope. They don't. They reject the warnings of Isaiah. And that's what Paul calls as One of his evidences, Isaiah 29, just to read it in context here. Isaiah 29, verses 9 and 10, the prophet says, "...Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and has covered your heads, the seers." Isaiah prophetically warning Israel that what God has been telling them literally since their inception is about to come true, that if they are not faithful to him, he will judge them, and he's going to use another nation to do that, namely Babylon coming in from the north, and he's warning them, and he's warning them, and do they see that? Do they hear that? Do they understand that? No, they don't. This isn't a new warning. God has been telling them from the beginning, as far back as Moses, even before they set foot in the promised land. And he applies that to today and says, doing the same thing. You can't earn your salvation. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. Do those not in the remnant, do those non-elect have the ears to hear that? No, they don't. Let's head over to Deuteronomy for the next section so he's quoted the prophets now he's going to quote the law and the part of Deuteronomy he's going to quote Moses has Israel positioned opposite the promised land but before going in he has a full team meeting and gives them the law again just to make absolutely clear what God requires of them Deuteronomy 28 he explains in exact detail the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience if you skim through Deuteronomy 28 over lunch or wherever, you would note that the curses section is about three times longer than the blessings section. And then we get to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Moses reminds them of some of the things that they have seen God do, how he's led them in the wilderness through the trials, through the tribulations, the great miracles and wonders that they've seen with their own eyes, yet they don't get it. Deuteronomy 29, starting in verse two in context. And Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, you've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt and to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to the land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Moses is like, guys, look, Look at all that God has done for you already. Let that be the motivation for you to be faithful to him. And when you enter the promised land, be faithful to him. Because as of what, as of yet, you're not too faithful to him. And so when you get there, be faithful. Remember who God is. And may God give you the heart to understand and the eyes to see and the ears to hear the truth. Did they? No. They were still asleep. This this is why we get to the essence of, of grace. This is why it's not up to us. It's up to God. Because can we give ourselves ears to hear? No. Can we give ourselves eyes to see? No. Can we give ourselves a heart to understand? No. But who can? God. God, the Holy Spirit, gives us those things. We can't give them ourselves. If we jump back to Romans 11, we'll see how Paul ties these pieces together. Look at Romans 11 in verse 8. As it is written, he combines those verses in Isaiah and Deuteronomy. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear down to this very day. Paul answers his own question. He loves doing that. Did Israel obtain the righteousness with God that they were looking for? No. They had eyes that wouldn't see, they had ears that wouldn't hear. They were like a drunk who doesn't understand things clearly. And it's still like this today, he says. Guys, this is why we can't take the prophecies that all of the YouTube nut doodle do's are going on and on and on about right now because they can't... Israel, ah, they're going crazy. That's why you can't take the, the prophecies about Israel in the Bible and apply them to Israel today. Not the same Israel. One was in a covenant with God, which was then broken by them, fulfilled by Jesus Christ, and is now available through faith in Jesus Christ. And so you have to be very, very careful about applying prophecies that God made to to his nation in covenant with him today. It is not the same Israel. It's not the same covenant. Old covenant Israel is gone because the old covenant has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ Does that mean that God is completely done with Israel as a whole? No. But in a sense, thank the Lord, he's not done with any of us. He's not done with any nation. And Israel, like anyone and everyone else, will be judged for their rejection of Jesus the Messiah and the only means of salvation. So what? Judgment is still coming. And that's where Paul goes next. Paul completes this uh, trifecta of Old Testament support here. He already quoted from the prophet Isaiah. He quoted from Moses in the law. And now he's going to get to the writings and quote in the book of Psalms. And as we parachute into the book of Psalms, you guys are getting a workout today. It's not my fault. It's the apostle Paul's fault. He's the one dropping Old Testament references like crazy. Specifically in Psalm 69, we see it's a psalm of David. It's a lament. We're not sure exactly what situation is happening, but it doesn't look good. David cries out that the waters have come up to his neck. He is stuck in despair. He's weary with crying. He calls out to God to save him as his enemies are surrounding him. And then he calls on God to curse his enemies. Psalm 69, starting in verse 22, says this, Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they're at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. In this context, David is calling down a curse on his enemies and a plea for God to save him from them. The text says, let this happen. And as Paul then transports that into Romans 11, we see something very, very interesting. Look at how Paul applies it. Romans 11, starting in verse 9, David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Okay, so hold on here. David was applying that as a curse to his enemies, And now Paul is applying that in context to the Jews. And he's cursing them. He's saying those that refuse to submit to Jesus as the Messiah. Those who want to try to continue to substitute their own works righteousness. Those who reject the plan of God for salvation. He's calling a curse on them. He says let their table become a snare and a trap. The idea of a table is the table of feasting. It should be something that is good. It should be something with good food and good drink and good times and all of that. And he says, let that whole prosperity be a trap for them and a snare, a stumbling block and retribution. Paul ties all this together because they don't get it and it will be curses on them. Israel failed to see that righteousness is available one and only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Not their heritage, not their feasting tables, not their festivals, not their sacrifices, not their family line, not their obedience to the law, nothing of their own merit, because otherwise it wouldn't be grace. They didn't have ears to hear the truth of that or eyes to see it, and because of that, they will be judged it was their sin and their rebellion that blinded them to the truth of the gospel. And that's the way it was supposed to work. Paul said, in effect, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Hardened to what? To grace of God, to save the remnant through faith. Are they responsible for their sin and their rejection? You better believe it. they are. And who left them in their sin? God allowed it in his sovereignty, and he will judge those who reject him. So here's here's kind of the, the point that I want to pull together in this second part. Our sin blinds us to God's grace, and God leaves some in their sin as judgment. Our sin blinds us. It's one that causes us not to be able to see clearly, not to be able to hear, not to be able to understand, and God leaves some in their sin as judgment. That's what he's doing with Israel. That's what Paul's saying. He's leaving those that are not in the remnant in their sin, where they're not going to be able to understand as judgment, the curse called down on them. This is so important that we understand how this works. In context, this is about Israel. He's explaining that not all Israel is Israel. We've already heard that before. He said that. Not all Israel will be saved. It appears that most won't. God saves only a remnant, and that's all by his grace. So the question, church, really isn't, Did God reject Israel? But it's more of a statement that Israel rejected God. And does he throw the whole nation out because of that? No. In his grace, his jaw-dropping grace, he chooses to save some. It's not that God picks and chooses out of Israel so much, or even out of us, who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, and that's an unfortunate oversimplification of a very complex doctrine and we need to admit at some point and just tap out. I don't know how that works, but that's what this says. I'm not God, but we know that God doesn't save everybody. We know that only some will come to know God, and we've got to say that God knows who those are. If we say God is sovereign, and we throw that term around a lot, if we say God is servant, sovereign, that means he's sovereign over every single aspect of his creation, including salvation. If you're in Christ today, he orchestrated every single event in your life to be in Christ. He was never surprised when you bowed your knee and submitted to him as Savior and Lord. If he ever should have been surprised, it probably would have been with me. Really? That guy? Wow! but he orchestrated every single thing in my life for him to come for me to come to him. Fact, we are sinners. Also fact, God saves a remnant by grace. What about the rest? Paul says they're hardened. Our word for hardened can be used as a medical term. It's a thickening of bones when they heal together after maybe be, being broken or a swelling. It means to make something impervious or insensitive or maybe calloused. Isaiah uses it elsewhere to say that people's hearts have grown fat. Doesn't mean a medical condition. It means they're delighting in the things of this world. They're all about pleasure. They're all about making themselves joyful. It makes people dull to the truth of the gospel. And in Greek, our passage, Paul uses this word of being hardened in the passive sense, meaning that people don't harden their own hearts. Their hearts are already hardened. And the inevitable conclusion from this passage is that their hearts are hardened, why? By their own sin. That's why they don't have eyes to see and ears to hear because their, heart, their eyes and their ears are sinful and their hearts are calloused. And God allows that to happen. He leaves them in their sin. It's the famous conundrum in Exodus with Pharaoh. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh hard, harden his own heart against God? If you read it, it'll drive you batty because it says both. It alternates in between. And so answer, do we harden our hearts through the sinfulness that we have in ourselves? Yes. Does God allow that to happen? Yes. Because he's sovereign over all things. That's why he saves some, which is a remnant out of complete and total grace. Do we have the ability to open our own eyes? Do we have the ability to open our own ears, to give us the heart to receive the message? No. And this is, too, where we have to bring it back to the concept of our own wills. Our hearts are hardened to God because we love our sin. People don't turn to Christ because they don't want to turn to Christ. No one goes to hell that wants to turn to Christ. It's not like somebody saying, no, I really wanted to believe in you. Why are you sending me to hell? If they really wanted to believe in him, they would, but their own sin and their own stubborn wills stopped them from doing that. And God's aware of that. But anyone who calls in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And we proclaim that from the rooftops. Paul's saying that the elect will call on Christ, but the rest, they won't. They have a hardened heart. Another way to think about this is that everyone has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all enter this world sinful and guilty and on our way to hell, the fact that God saves a single person is a miracle of grace. That's what we've got to realize. The whole backdrop of humanity is sinful. The fact that in his grace, he would would step into time and space and at great personal cost to himself, sacrifice his son on the cross in order to save some is mind-blowing. Would we do that? Everybody turn their backs on us? Would we save those who are our enemies? Of course not. But that's the jaw-dropping grace of Christ. But God, looking at all humanity... And instead of writing us all off because we've all turned away from him in our own way, instead of just blowing this place up because he could have and should have, instead of spiting us each and every day, we stand and breathe his air and shake our fists at him and his divine providence and constant grace. Instead of cutting us off from all that, he saves some. And we are right back to where we started. God saves a remnant And it is all by his grace. So where does this leave us? A few things to think about in application here as we land this plane. first church prayer. We pray. We pray for the salvation of those around us who have not yet submitted to Christ. In the words of one famous theologian, we pray for God to save the elect and elect some more. That's what we want God to do. We pray for God's kingdom to come and everyone who is supposed to be in it, be in it and gathered into it. The Westminster Larger Confession 191 says it this way. The second petition, he's talking about the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. We pray this way. Acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan. We pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, that the gospel propagated throughout the world. Watch this. That the Jews called... And that the fullness of the Gentiles will be brought in. That's the way we pray. Did you catch that? We pray along with chapter 11 in Romans that way. That's the fullness of God's remnant to be brought in. God will lose none of whom are supposed to be in that remnant. He won't. It's impossible for him to do that. Specifically today, church, we need to be praying for Israel. We need to be praying that the Jews would repent and turn to Christ in faith. That's the only way to peace in the Middle East. Now, I'm not saying we don't pursue peace now. Yes, we don't want people killing each other. means of peace, that's fine. But the only true peace is going to be when hearts are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ on both sides. And so you better believe we're praying for everyone. For what? For their eyes to be opened, for their ears to be unstopped, for their hearts to be sensitive to the gospel. That's how we need to be praying for the situation in Israel. Do you think that God's remnant includes some from Israel? Yes, a lot of them. Here's another tough question. Do you think that God's remnant includes some from Hamas, from Hezbollah, from Iran? Yeah, it does. And we've got to be praying that their eyes are open to the gospel. Second, we pray, but second, are we being faithful? We can ruin our lives by the hypocrisy and rationalization of sin. And we can do dire uh, consequence to our effectiveness of our gospel proclamation by distraction. Are we distracted? Or is Christ our first and highest priority? Here's one thing to think about. What What were some of the words that Paul used? Talking about Israel, those that don't see, a spirit of stupor. Their eyes would be darkened so that they, they cannot see, almost like they were asleep. Church, are we asleep or are we awake? Are we people that actually understand the times that we're living in? Do we know how to pray for the gospel to succeed? Hear me. I don't mean, of course, the interpreting of news headlines into the book of Revelation. Right? We don't go all crazy with oh look, it's Gog and Magog over here in Revelation and and China did this, so therefore that's prophesied back here all the way. No, please don't do that. Please do not read current headlines into the Bible. That's not how that works. That's not what I mean in interpreting the times. I mean, church, we need the gospel right now in the Middle East. That's what we need. That's what has to happen. Are we praying for those churches on the ground? Are we praying for those people? to have their eyes opened by the only one that can open their eyes, Jesus Christ, through the Spirit. I would throw in a third. It's not ours to know all the details of who is in the remnant, right? That's what we want. We're just like, oh, the remnant. If we're not in the remnant, is that fair? It's not ours to know the details of who is in the remnant, but it's ours to rejoice in it. We naturally think maybe the remnant is small, I want to give you something else to think about. Maybe the remnant's bigger than you think. Maybe the remnant's bigger than you think. Maybe God's doing a work right here right now in this in this stage of world history that is about to blow the gospel wide open. Maybe the remnant's bigger than you think. The Bible tells us why. That God is a God of mercy and grace. And he shows steadfast love and kindness. And let us live our lives like the remnant is much bigger than we think. Why? Because God is merciful and gracious. And God doesn't throw out all of all humanity, but rather he saves a remnant. And that is all by grace. And church, look at the grace of God. He didn't make a complete end to Israel. And boy, should he have. We look at history and we're just like, all the stuff that they did. And it's hard for us not to think, well, "Well, I'm not as bad as they are. I didn't worship Baal. I didn't sacrifice my children to another God. I didn't see God do all those things and then turn my back on him when he provided the very land that I live in. But we're not that far away from Israel, are we? But by the grace of God, there go I. And so if God did not reject Israel, how merciful is our God? What about us, church? If God did not reject America, which he didn't. And he probably should, but he didn't. He saves a remnant by his grace. God didn't reject, personalize a church. If God didn't reject me, because I know all the ways that I failed God. I know all the ways that I turn my back and live myself like I'm my own king. If God didn't reject me, how merciful and gracious is that God. But this God, perfect balance with himself, his mercy then has to be balanced with judgment. And as we've said before when we talk about judgment, that's a good thing. Because we do want evil to be punished. Evil is getting away with nothing. But it's, if, if, if he's all mercy, then he's weak. But if he's all justice, then he's all wrath, then he's just harsh. That's why it's the perfect balance Both. This is the paradox of our God, church. Brings me back to Exodus 34, 6, and I'll leave us with this. Moses begging to see the Lord in his glory, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But watch this who will by no means clear the guilty. God saves some. God saves a remnant, and that is all by his grace. Father, this is deep theological waters that we are swimming in here. These are things that are hard for us to understand. But Lord, we are so thankful for your mercy and for your grace. And we do pray that you would open eyes all around the world. Lord, we know that when people read headlines of what's going on in the Middle East, excuse me, Father, that they would panic, that they would have anxiety, and that they would start to think like, what is going on? Lord, may you use all of those moments of anxiety and panic and turn people towards yourself, soften their hearts, unstop their ears, open their eyes to the true peace, the Prince of Peace, who you've given us in Jesus Christ. So please, Lord, would you do that work? Would you do that work specifically in Israel right now? Would you do that work with the Jews? Would you do that work even with the Muslims that are warring against them? Would you do that work in our country, and in Iran, and in China, and all parts of the world, Lord, that seem to be escalating in tension? Would you turn hearts towards you? And of course, we know that that is the work of the local church. Churches on the ground, Lord. We pray for their empowerment. We pray for their fruitfulness. We pray for those to come to faith. We pray for the pastors there to be proclaiming the gospel in truth and clarity. And we pray for hearts to be softened to the message of Jesus. And we ask this all in your name and for your glory. Amen.